Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast. In it, we will be discussing the review paper, The Association of Cerebral Palsy with Birth Asphyxia, a Definitional Quagmire, by Jonas Ellenberg and Karen Nelson, which is appearing in the March 2013 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Jonas Ellenberg of the Caramel School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, USA, and Dr. Karen Nelson, pediatric neurologist at the Children's National Medical Center, Washington, D.C., and scientist emeritus at the NINDS NIH, who are the authors, and by Professor Nadia Badawi, consultant neonatologist at the Children's Hospital Westmead, Sydney, Australia, who is also the Professor of Cerebral Palsy Research at CP Alliance of Australia. Please can we start with you, Professor Ellenberg, to outline the paper and its background. Certainly. Thank you, Peter. We were uh, struck, uh, Professor Nelson and myself, with the papers we were reading since our original work in this area, published in 1986, that uh, resulted from our work on the NINDS, the Neurology Institute Collaborative Perinatal Project, which indicated that the cause of cerebral palsy was not likely to be in the area of uh, the delivery room or obstetrics malpractice, we decided to look again, since our work was already 20 years old, at the nature of the papers that were still reporting on this issue, coupled with the issue of higher and higher malpractice claims and awards and the somewhat uh, stark defection of obstetricians uh, from practicing obstetrics. And we undertook a review in uh, these standard literature machines, Medline being the primary, to determine what papers had been written in the last two decades that related to the area of how birth asphyxia was or was not related to the onset of cerebral palsy. What we found in the 20 papers that met all of the entry criteria, which are detailed in the uh, actual paper, but amongst those 20 papers, there was a really mixed quality of the papers, some paying very great deal of attention to uh, the quality of the definitions, some paying a great deal of attention to the nature of where they got their cases, and we found that there was a huge diversity in the risks for outcome of cerebral palsy in these papers. The figure uh, will show that there are reported rates of association birth asphyxia with outcome uh, varying anywhere from uh, almost 0% all the way up to 55%, which is dramatic. And we felt at the end of the study that there are several reasons why these different studies uh, ended up with results like this. And unfortunately, the ones showing the highest relationship of asphyxia to cerebral palsy are the ones that appear to have captured the legal community and even the scientific community. So we felt it important to make sure that this was in the literature. This is not a new study. It's a review of other papers. And in terms of what one might expect here, looking at this, one might think one might perform a meta-analysis to combine all these results and get a result that was sort of believable, credible, and the like, 
but we felt very strongly, and the statistical assessment of the data indicated that these studies were too heterogeneous to possibly combine them for a common risk factor of birth asphyxia to cerebral palsy. The reasons we found that the, the variability was so high was, for one thing, the nature of the cohorts that were selected. Some were what we call population-based cohorts, where the nature of the selection of the cohorts was not necessarily a random sample, but somewhere above having a single practitioner's tertiary care practice as the nature of the cohort. And those two, as Karen and I have published before, really make a big difference. Not a difference that's almost right, a difference that's wrong. So we were essentially saddened to see that these types of papers up to 2012, as we did our work, was uh, not paying any attention to the nature of uh, research that we feel would be essential for the correct results to come out. And I think then that summarizes the main concerns and the main results. Well, I think that that uh, covers just the background and the reason why we undertook the investigation. Um, it may not quite cover why the results were as they are, which seem to be very much influenced by the fact that the syndrome of depression in the newborn was taken as defining an asphyxial cause in many of the papers. That is, fetal monitoring abnormalities or seizures in the newborn or a diagnosis of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy was taken as a proper label that birth asphyxia was the cause, whereas I think it's clear from other studies that that syndrome in the newborn has a number of different causes. And, for example, in the collaborative project, 30% of the babies who had neonatal seizures who are very significantly related to the diagnosis of birth asphyxia in some papers, 30% of those kids have major malformations if you uh, examine these kids further, particularly if you follow them after their birth. The notion that that picture of depression in the newborn labels it convincingly as birth asphyxia, I think that's falsified and that's demonstrated by paper after paper in the literature. That's big. And then the other question is, has, has to do with the other definitional aspects of both birth asphyxia and CP, but mainly the nonspecificity of that syndrome in the newborn, which is depended on by many of the definitions in the papers that are cited, I think is mistaken. It's a mistake with implications that keep showing up because many people, even in the neonatology community, have not paid attention to the population-based research in human babies. There's been a great deal of interest, as indeed there very much ought to be in the experimental studies, but they can't tell you how much of this problem arises for what reasons in human babies. They they reflect what you do to a previously normal young animal. So if you look at the human studies in human populations, you get an answer that says, yes, there's some impact of events in the process of birth that deny oxygen to the fetus or newborn, but that's quite a small proportion of the total so the question is, so what else is there that we should be worrying about? Thank you. Professor Badawi, would you like to comment? It's really interesting that still so many years after Nelson and Ellenberg have published some of their really important papers, the question is still so pertinent. I'm quite sad about it in a way. And I was going to ask, Karen, what researchers can use this study for especially with the advent of cooling and possibly EPO and other supposedly preventative strategies coming online. What she thought researchers could use this paper for? Hmm. Thank you. 
I'd like to say before beginning that that the work from Western Australia, from the marvelous registry there, with Fiona Stanley and Eve Blair, has been a. I mean, if, if uh, Jonathan Hyde had been singing alone, I don't think that anybody would have had to pay attention to a single source. But as the evidence from Western Australia became uh, mounted as well, and then, then from elsewhere, that it became more appropriate for there to be attention paid. About the implications, uh, first, if you're a clinician and have to talk to parents, then the notion that cerebral palsy is not a disorder inflicted by the obstetrician necessarily in the, in the delivery room is it's just an important thing to know that you're the conveyor of the message to families as well as to lawyers, and it's just important for caregivers to, to absorb the fact that the current evidence does not support the notion that birth is the sole nor even the major cause of cerebral palsy. There's been a real milestone in the treatment of term babies who are very depressed as newborns, and that has been uh, with therapeutic cooling. That has not only decreased the morbidity in the newborn period and the long-term morbidity, but it's decreased mortality as well. Unfortunately, it doesn't benefit most of the treated babies. And when you think about the possibility that it's the cause of that depression, if you buy it, as I surely do, the evidence that says that there's several different reasons why babies can be depressed as newborns, term babies, then you have to ask whether the cause of that depression influences the response to cooling therapy. Cooling was designed to deal with asphyxial insults. Maybe the reason more babies don't respond to it is that they have other problems cooking that need additional or perhaps other approaches. There's even some suggestion in some of the adult sepsis studies that there are situations in, of inflammation in which cooling may not be advantageous. But certainly just asking, so what else is going on in this baby that we should be doing something about, I think it's short shrift sometimes. It's too easy to say, this is HIE, this is birth asphyxia, but the implications that are important, I think uh, Nadia mentions the studies that have been done in cooling, but also the studies that are, that are coming up in the near future, cooling plus, adding things like uh, EPO, erythropoietin, yeah, adding erythropoietin and other agents, or, uh, several agents under, under contemplation. The, the only other point I'd like to make is that the way you can tell some of these other causes of depression in the newborn is to look at the placenta. And the placenta, one of the common things that's going on is the baby's infected and has been infected in, in, a, in an infected placenta and has become affected by, by the inflammation. If that's true, then the ways you would have prevented that sickness and the ways you would treat it might be rather different. And in the next wave of studies, EPO studies and others, I hope that there will be an effort to gather information from the placenta. You don't get that information until after you have to make treatment decisions about cooling, but uh, at least secondary analyses of those studies should include the information you can get from the placenta about whether something else is more specific is going on that uh, would have taken a different approach to prevention if you'd only known it and would modify the way you manage the baby or treat the next baby of that mother, for example. There are a few entities that have implications for the next pregnancy. I think the practical bottom line is that we should be Whenever a baby is born depressed, the baby should go to the intensive care and the placenta should go to the lab, and then the doctor should look at the placental information and see how that could influence care, might have influenced prevention, will influence the way they proceed in the future. Yes. So could I ask a question, you know, that, um, you know, many researchers will come and say, so, you know, well, the definitions of birth asphyxia are pretty hopeless. None of you can agree. And then researchers will say to me, well, we have to have some definition, a pragmatic definition of birth asphyxia that we can use to tailor a new research uh, study 
particularly an interventionist one. So what would you say to researchers who face this dilemma who are designing a study at the moment? Well, I certainly have every sympathy with the, with the dynamic yeah. because it's for real. I think this would, would warrant a, a getting together of researchers to make some decisions for the community of, of researchers. There are things you can rule out by the workup that's undertaken. If you're addressing what can be done in the first six hours so that the baby can qualify for randomization into a trial, then it's a fairly limited list of things that you can look at that fast. But if you're asking... What should you stratify for in the secondary analysis so you can see whether the results applied to all babies who later had evidence of infection, who later had evidence of metabolic disease, who later had evidence of a major malformation in some other organ system? Then so there are two different questions. But I think that the, uh, uh, any severely depressed baby has to be considered. And then the question is how do you do a fast differential diagnosis uh, looking for the metabolic things that would need immediate treatment, looking for other things that might uh, influence management right away. If, if you think the baby is coming out of an infected environment, then there's a research set of issues that go into, are there, there are receptor blockers for the cytokines that tend to be very elevated in that situation, and I don't think any of them, those is ready for clinical consideration, but I think you might address it in research. Are there ways to identify infection earlier? Would any fast screen of a frozen section of the umbilical cord give you information that would that would give you access to information very quickly. It sort of becomes a research question of uh, what can you measure fast to help you recognize the nature of the illness in, in, the, in time to, to make decisions about randomizing babies for interventions. And then there's a whole set of questions about the major differential diagnostic issues that I think could be outlined mm -hmm. or how do you categorize the baby as you look back. And then, of course, there's a, the question of how to use the imaging data. Assumptions have been made about the specificity of things on brain on neuroimaging that I think are, are really in question and uh, aren't that specific. And uh, In fact, those assumptions, I think, should be subject to question in, in a new set of evidence that included more looking at the nature of the illness in babies and the placentas. One of the dilemmas I see constantly, and I really can't get my head around, is why Babies with birth defects are invariably excluded from studies. Well, what do you think? I think that's a really, really good question. I'm sitting here, uh, I've just been looking at some uh, papers about even minor malformations sometimes show you a biological mechanism underlying things. So it's, I'm looking at a paper on hypospadias, a big proportion of male babies with hypospadias. I mean, that's obviously not something that affects the brain. That doesn't cause CP. So what's, what's, why, why think about that? It's because the hypospadias is evidence of a hormonal environment, the uterus, that has a lot of biological impact on the brain. It isn't hypospadias, obviously. That's just a flag that something's going on here. But these babies are much more commonly small for gestational age, so something has affected their growth. So it's a whole other question about how the birth defects really, and I think by excluding them, uh, it's not so obvious why why they'd be excluded. An original reason for exclusion was that you want to keep as clear an idea of etiology as you can, but when you realize that that isn't a clear idea of etiology, yes. you have to rethink, <laughs> rethink that question. I know, I absolutely agree. And the other thing, uh, Jonas, don't, don't in most cases the investigators have to tell you what candidates were eligible and excluded and what for what reasons? I, that isn't done in the cooling trials. Isn't that surprising for a randomized trial? Not in, not in this series of papers. And going back to Karen's point about what happened before, if you're looking for an etiology of CP, then we have decided that it's inappropriate to include 
children who have early birth defects, be they neurological or otherwise, because you're you're just shading the answer. Uh, yeah, I think what what Nadia is wondering, I think, is whether what, babies with some birth defects might benefit too. Why why exclude them? No, yeah, that's right, the randomization right. issue. Once you get to randomization, then it's probably a good idea to include them and make sure you have enough of the babies with birth defects so that we can get uh, salient results from any clinical trial we run. But if you, if you go back to just the etiology and whether a simple answer is, is that it's just caused in the delivery room, then it seems to me that it's appropriate to eliminate those children who clearly have prior causation and would not have been infected on the road to cerebral palsy if there was birth of 60 in the newborn, or it could have been exacerbated. But once you get to the randomization state, once, once you're looking at treatment, then it seems to me there's no reason that you shouldn't be including all children, all comers. You can include and stratify uh, if you had enough, uh, enough kids with similar enough defects. But I think it depends a lot on the question. If you're asking the question, are there other things that can cause this clinical picture, then you want the birth defects out. If, you, if you're asking what causes the whole spectrum, then you want them in. So it, as so often, the right answer depends on what question you're, you're trying to frame. And I, I, I don't know of any reason why babies with some kinds of birth defects mightn't benefit from cooling. And, and it seems strange to accept that you don't want your study messed up with a different kind of baby. Therefore, you have to categorize. Well, the problem is there are probably such a large percentage and so many children who may not have a birth defect, as we know, diagnosable in the first period, sure. will have that diagnosed later on in life, some of the inborn errors of metabolism, neuro neurological conditions. It just bothers me because they weren't included in etiological studies, and now they're being excluded in therapeutic studies. If we don't know then that, in fact, the birth defect may not have rendered them more vulnerable. We're not sure how the birth defect's operating in this condition. Absolutely. Well, I think what, what this speaks for is that there has to be a late return for reanalysis of any given cooling study to say, now that you have a better view of all the things that have turned up, the sibling with the strange neurologic disease, the metabolic defect, the anatomical defect, now X years later, five, six, seven, whatever anybody decides, let's go back and relook if we reclassify these same babies as to whether there was or was not another explanation that turned up after the sixth hour when the baby was committed to the cooling that helps us understand what was going on here. I, going back to, to the original data and classifying by subsequent information, if you have large enough sample size, might be informative. I mean, what, what turned up in whom and how often on which side of the uh, randomization? Which is um, why the problem with sort of the short cycle funding Exactly. You know, we really need to be following ah. these people right up to adolescence, dare I say, parenthood even. Well, I'm I, thinking that might be hard to sell. I would say five years or something like that is a reasonable turn turnaround. <laughs> yeah, it would be a good start. <laughs> it would be a, a place to begin. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, and it would, it would give you the major things that have turned up and might be more realistic to, pers to persuade a funder to consider. Yeah. Uh, but I think that because the idea of homogeneity has, I think it's a falsified. Yes. The obligation to say, okay, now what? 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 How can we sort these kids out so we can do better in future? So we can select better children who benefit from the cooling, select children who might be injured by the cooling, select kids who need something else that we're not providing because we're so busy running around with uh, dealing with this 
uh, approach. And I mean, I, I think now it would be very appropriate to make another sort, and it, that doesn't, as you say, imply funding to follow the children, to, to gather the information, to make that part of the initial, I, I hate to say it, uh, consent that people expect to be recontacted in the future. We won't really uh, have very convincing information until we've done the best we can at that. Yes, I think there's been an urge to put a very complex heterogeneous condition into one neat little category, and it doesn't want to be fitted into it. I think that's right, and it's much assisted by, by focus on the animal experiments, which you couldn't do randomized trials without them, and they give an immense amount of information, but they lead you to think you know more than we really do. Yes. We lead us to think we know more than we do, because we do something mm -hmm. simple, we see this result, it looks a lot like what the babies look like, so that must be it, bingo. But if that's not true, and it seems it's not, that the story is more complicated than that, then, then a little touch of reality would, might be very beneficial. So where do you think from here, Jonas and Karen? I think getting the placental information is the first step because so much of the first source that you make, of the, is this inflammatory or is this asphyxial or the, a com, some combination? And then uh, among the inflammatory lesions, there are several different kinds, some of which are infectious organisms, some of which are immune defects, a common problem in the placenta that is associated in a couple of new studies this year with encephalopathy in the newborn are immune conditions, and they would have quite a different approach, both preventively and therapeutically. Well, there's no proven therapy. The therapy you'd want to test if you could recognize those kids is quite different, and incorporating information from the placenta into the it may take you a while to get all the other kinds of information, but the information from the placenta must be decided. It must, you must decide in the delivery room where that placenta goes to the lab. And if it doesn't, doesn't, then you've lost the opportunity to consider the information it might have uh, contributed. Well, obviously, I defer to the uh, neurological implications, but in terms of study design, uh, a not unreasonable approach to working through the etiology not yet again, but definitively, finally. In, in this day and age, I think we have the ability to follow children through pregnancy in their first three to five years of life, making sure that we collect the information that could be used to examine the whole trajectory through the uh, conception and forward, which would include looking at placental samples, looking at early birth defects, which obviously Nadia already said, are many times not really diagnosed in what, until well after the uh, child might have already started cerebral palsy or the clinical signs of cerebral palsy. But I believe that study could probably be done now, and we could, rather than making a, a clear-cut definition of asphyxia at the beginning, we could get the world together to decide on things that we feel should be assessed as to being in the definition of asphyxia and make sure that we measure all of those things throughout pregnancy and in the delivery room. So I think a study could still be fielded, just an observational study on cerebral palsy, but I, I believe in terms of the funding agency that this does not rise to the level of sexiness that would allow for such a costly study. We almost have that with the National Children's Study, which is now in question, and I'm not sure how much of the audience are aware of this, but this was to be a conception through delivery and through the 21st year of follow-up of the children. Now the, the study is uh, having a bit of 
problems in uh, keeping its identity and its funding. But that would have been able to be done in that context. It's a trick on doing, doing that kind of study for such low low frequency outcomes yes. as CP in term kids uh, might have to start not with the pregnancies but with something that it's flagged by a de depression of a relatively mature fetus in the delivery room. I suppose the old problem being that they're of course still the minority of people who have cerebral palsy. Of course, your own course. work first sort of outlined. Well, and your contribution about the placenta has been one part of what's focused our attention on the need to incorporate that information. And yeah, it's not without its difficulties, but if you look at the research agenda, it's been heavily on events in the delivery room, and there yes. certainly are places in the world where that deserves a lot of focus. Low-resource areas improving their care, probably, I mean, arguably, there's evidence that that does really yes. change the outcome. In the way obstetrics is practiced in high-resource areas, it's not so obvious that that's where the next increment in benefits of the kids neurologically is going to come. There are irreducible things going on there that are in the baby before the baby hits the delivery room, the growth retardations, which come, some of which come from causes that are injurious to brain and so forth. So to me, the question is the uh, clinical research to try to understand who these kids are once they are identified as neurologically ill, and then so it's too uncommon to do forward. I think you have to do it, do it backward. That is to look at the histories of the affected babies and, and comparison children to find out what the whole range of, of things are that, that are in fact getting to babies' brains. If birth asphyxia isn't the biggie, then what is? And uh, I think that might be easier to support. It's certainly easier to do than anything prospectively. And, and, uh, yes, I think there are trials starting now and they're using melatonin in babies who mm -hmm. have growth restrictions. It'll be interesting to see if that does have any effect. But I think they're looking in the right epoch. Right. Are those babies who are recognized quite early yes. in gestation? During the pregnancy, yeah. Uh, so it's relatively early in gestation. Those are being picked up, right? So it'll be... Uh, yes. It's, I'm not sure what gestation they're starting at, but uh, I know there's work in Monash starting on. There's a trial, a human trial, I believe, has just started. Well, there, there are lots of different entities that end up with poor fetal growth, and I think sorting those out a bit is, is just going to be... An, an important yeah. part of the story. Now, for cooling, you exclude dramatically small for dates babies, but there are a lot of babies who weren't growing very well who do get in. I, I've argued this with our neonatologists at Children's who, where they say they don't, but I look at the records and they, they, the comment is that the baby and the weights are. Uh, anyway, the question of the role of poor growth and its antecedents in, in affecting the brain of the fetus. And what you can well, do. growth restriction is notoriously hard to detect even when the baby is born. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the customized charts are a step ahead to recognize more babies whose growth isn't the optimal for that baby? Yes. Anyway, it's a whole other set of questions. And to say, if it's not birth addiction, then what is it? And how do we go about finding out and doing what we can about it? And that's maybe the most important takeaway uh, is that that seems like an appropriate set of next questions. Yes, well, it just shows, you know, why your study is so important and so relevant to the clinical and research world at the moment. Thank you. I, the, the legal pressure has been part of the story, but I think the non-specificity of the, of the clinical picture in the newborn is also a major part of the problem, just persuading 
people to look at the possibility that something else is going on in this baby and try to recognize it and ask whether care would mean doing something in addition to cooling for some of such babies. Yes, and, uh, you know, I've been doing clinical work so long now that I keep coming across families who've had a baby comes in and they say, surely I can't have another baby with birth asphyxia. You know, his brother just died of that three years ago. And Whoops. we're still <laughs> saying these things, you know. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Yes, well, that, that's... Shamingly I, I, common. Well, then, uh, I, I don't know, is it, is it clear to you, Jonas, for example, that what, what Nadia is saying there, that there's some diagnosis that's not being made that might affect the next pregnancy of this family, that uh, perhaps in this situation a genetic disorder that isn't, has escaped diagnosis? So um, all, all of those possibilities. Yes. No question. Thank you very much indeed. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks to Professor Ellenberg, Professor Nelson, and Professor Badawi for such an expert discussion on an issue that crosses so many boundaries. You've challenged what's often considered received wisdom, and I hope listeners will, like me, find it makes us review our own ideas on the subject. Just to remind everyone that this article is called The Association of Cerebral Palsy with Birth Asphyxia, a Definitional Quagmire by Ellenberg and Nelson, and it's in the March 2013 issue.